0: you all for our afternoon uh, service as we're going through the confession. Hopefully we've all got a little bit of energy after eating, and uh, if you would turn with me, turn uh, in your hymnal to page 672. We're going to pick up in chapter 3 of the confession. Uh, Chapter 3 has to do with God's decree of all things, and you can find that again on page 672. Did we all find it? We're all there? Okay. 672. Today we're going to focus on paragraphs 3 through 5. We did paragraph 2 last, last time. And so let's uh, read beginning in paragraph 3. By the decree of God for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of His glorious grace others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of His glorious justice. These angels and men thus predestinated and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to His eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of His mere free grace and love without anything in the creature as a condition or cause moving Him thereunto. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that You would give us alert minds, give us energy and strength after lunch, that we would... Uh, give our attention to the things of Your Word. We recognize that our confession is not inspired. It is written by men, and yet, we do believe it to be an accurate reflection of Your Holy Word. And so, we pray that You would give us attentive minds. Help us, Lord, to be thoughtful and careful as we seek to grow in, our, in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Lord, equip us to be Christians who handle Your Word correctly and who rightly divide it, who rightly understand it, so that we might glory in the truths contained. Father, help us, we pray. We thank You for Your goodness. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, paragraphs 1 and 2, uh, we discuss God's decree more generally. Remember, God's decree is his, essentially His plan, and then providence is the unfolding of that decree in time. Um, we saw in paragraph 1 that the decree of God is exhaustive. There's nothing that happens apart from God's decree. Um, it's according to His good pleasure. It's unchangeable. Last time we looked at paragraph 2, which denies that God's decree is conditional. And we saw that God does not decree a thing because He foreknows it, but rather He foreknows a thing will be because He's decreed it to be. Okay, So now, in paragraphs, beginning in paragraph 3 and moving through the rest of the chapter, the confession now narrows its focus to a specific aspect of God's decree, namely predestination unto life and what we call reprobation. And there are many today, I think, who would pay they would pay lip service to, to paragraph one, right? Uh, they feel uncomfortable saying that no, this world isn't according to the plan of God. <laughs> and so they pay lip service to, yeah, in some sense, everything happens because God's Decreed it to happen. Planned it to happen. But when it comes to paragraph 3 and on here, uh, they somewhat get cold feet. Um, For a variety of reasons, it seems unfair or unrighteous of God to choose beforehand who will be saved from their sins and who will not be. And in fact, you remember that is the objection that Paul raises in Romans 9 when he's playing his own devil's advocate, right? is as he's laying out, you know, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, before they had done anything good or bad, he says, you will say to me, is there unrighteousness with God? Um, to which Paul replies, may it never be. And we need to reply, may it never be. But the question is, how does Paul defend God's, the rightness of God choosing whom He will have mercy upon and whom He will not? How does he defend that? He doesn't do it by saying, no, you've misunderstood me. God's not really the one who chooses and determines. And He also doesn't do it by emphasizing man's autonomous free will or anything like that. But rather, He defends the rightness of this by showing that everything God does is for the manifestation of His glory, and that is the definition of rightness. If God did not act in salvation in accordance with His glory, then there would be unrighteousness with God. And you remember, Paul concludes in Romans 9, verse 22, he says, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory from vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? That verse, verse 22 of chapter 9, really is the tone and the emphasis of how our confession has framed this. If you look at paragraph 3, "...by the decree of God for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated um, to the praise of His glorious grace, others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation, to the praise of His glorious justice." God intends, Christian, this is the, let's let this touch down. This is not just, uh, you know, ethereal. Let's have all of our theological ducks in a row, but it doesn't have anything to do with how we live or anything like that. God intends the doctrine of predestination to cause us to see his glory, okay? It calls us to glory in his grace towards the elect and also to glory in his justice and his wrath and his power towards the reprobate. And Paul commands us in Romans chapter uh, 11, I believe it is, he says, behold both the kindness and the severity of God. And that's something we need to obey as Christians, is to behold both His kindness and also His severity in His justice. So, today we're going to talk about election or predestination unto life. I'm going to leave reprobation for another time. Um, it's, just, it, it's easier that way. Um, and so let's let's open this up and we'll just work paragraph by paragraph. Um, so starting in paragraph 3, notice those words, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained. Now, usually when we talk about election, we are talking about humans. But the Scripture also speaks of elect angels. And it's at this point that I... I'm remembering I was supposed to say this. My apologies for not having a handout for you. Um, I had internet issues and it was, I couldn't make it happen. But if you're quick or if you're on your phone, you can cross-reference these verses that I'll be giving you. But, so for instance, 1 Timothy 5.21, Paul charges Timothy, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Now, The word elect or election is another term that's very closely associated with predestination, right? Election is God's choosing of individuals, and then predestination is God's then predetermining their destiny, right? Um, Now, there are similarities and differences between the election of angels and the election of men, the similarities are that both of them rest on the good pleasure of God. Right? Whether it's men or angels, God chooses according to His freedom. However, the election of angels is different from God's election of men in, in this particular sense. The choice or the election of, of angels cannot in any sense be thought of as a redemption out of sin, but rather an election to keep them from falling into sin. Okay? There are no elect angels who fell and then were saved by Christ. Right? Um, rather, God choose, or chose a number of angels to uphold them and preserve them in their original righteousness. So, in this sense, it's, probably, it's more proper to say that the angels are in Christ not as Redeemer, but as Head. Okay? So they relate to Christ differently than fallen sinner, uh, human beings relate to Christ. But when it comes to the election and predestination of men, it is always a choosing and predestining to save or redeem them from sin through Christ. So unlike the angels, there are none of Adam's race that did not fall when uh, when Adam fell. And therefore, our predestination is out of sin into restored righteousness through Christ. Now... I'm going to say a word about this. Some of you will have no clue what I'm talking about, and that's fine. This is just one of those encouragements. You can read it in a good systematic theology. But some of you here do know what I'm talking about, and you will be wondering why I didn't say something, okay? So just a brief note. There is a, I don't know if you'd call it a controversy. It's just uh, something that the Puritans in particular kind of debated back and forth, and you would have Puritans on both sides but there is a, a discussion that the confession doesn't make a comment on uh, in order to make room for both views, and I think that's actually wise. Um, and it's a debate having to do with the, what we call the logical order of God's decrees, okay? Um, there's two views. One is called superlapsarianism, the other view is called infralapsarianism. How many of us have heard of those things? Oh, almost everyone has heard of that. OK. Um, so Laps is the Latin word for fall, right? Supra, if you think of God's decree in terms of a or, logical order of how God decreed things, here's the fall. The question is, did God elect logically prior, above, supra, the fall, or infra, below? Okay, And the question is... Everyone's mouthing which position they think is right. Um, so if you're an infralapsarian... You think that when God elected, He's already looking at a created, a creatable, and fallen humanity. So He's choosing out of a fallen humanity. If you're a supra, the decree of the fall hasn't logically happened yet, and so God is looking at human beings as creatable and fallible, but not yet created and fallen. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that, and I'm just going to leave. <laughs> I personally am of the super persuasion, um, but like I say, I think it's wise that the. Confession doesn't address that because good Christians should be able to disagree on that. Both of those are good Calvinistic positions, by the way. It's not like one, you're, you're all of a sudden not a Calvinist or whatever. It's just a different view in terms of the order of how God decreed it to elect. But, okay. What does it mean to predestine something? It sounds, or it means exactly what it sounds like, okay? To predestine something means God determines their destiny beforehand, right? Um, And specifically, the predestination that we're talking about is not just generally God's predestination of all things whatsoever comes to pass, but specifically, that predestination that is unto eternal life through Jesus Christ. So, Ephesians 1, verses 3-6, through Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Okay, a couple things I want to I hit home. Notice predestination is unto eternal life. Predestination is the fountain from which all of our blessedness in Christ flows. If you're in Christ today, it's because God chose you in Christ before the foundations of the world. Um, we saw last time that God does not decree something because He foreknows it, but rather He foreknows it because He has decreed it Same thing is true with the particular decree of election. Um, God does not predestine us because of foreseen faith or because of foreseen good works or whatever it may be, but rather, He predestines us that we would have faith and that we would have good works. And all of this because it is predestination to eternal life through Christ. And that's the second thing I want to hit home. As, we, as we're sitting here in Ephesians 1. Election, hear me here, election must never be separated from Christ and from the person of Christ. Um, Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Why or how? Verse 4, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Okay? That's really important to emphasize because sometimes people who are not Reformed in their theology, they will critique predestinarian theology like, like what's contained in our confession, and they'll say that it is cold and divorced from the love of God. Right? You guys just focus so much on God's decree. It's just kind of this cold, bare, Christless system. Nothing can be further from the truth. Paul unites predestination and the person of Christ in Ephesians 1 right here. Um, When we talk about election and predestination, we're not talking about it apart from Christ, but in Christ. Notice Paul says, we were chosen in Him. In Christ. Your election was in Christ. So that in time, we become the adopted sons of God in Him and obtain every spiritual blessing. Now, that's amazing to think about that, Christian. In a very real sense, in a, a mysterious sense, you have been in union with Christ from eternity. Okay? Um, that's what Paul says here. You were chosen in Christ. Now, let me, let me qualify that. The Puritans would speak of our union with Christ in three... Um, what would you call them? Just under three headings. Three, three different ways we speak of our union with Christ. Um... They spoke, first of all, of what was called, what's called our imminent union with Christ, which is what Ephesians 1.4 is describing. That we were elected in Christ, um, in union with Christ from all eternity. And secondly, they spoke of what's called our transient union, which refers to that mysterious union the believer had with Christ when he actually accomplished our salvation some 2,000 years ago. Right, Such is the mystery of our union with Christ that Paul can say things like in Romans 6, when Christ died, you died. Right? When Christ rose from the dead, you rose from the dead. And then thirdly, they would speak of our union with Christ in what we call the applicatory union. And this is the the aspect that we most usually are speaking about when we speak of union with Christ. And that's when... We experience that applicatory union when the spirit actually in time applies Christ to us and we enter into that mystic, sweet communion with Christ that's now a, a the way one Puritan would put it is, before the moment of our conversion, Christ already had apprehended us, um, but when we are converted, we actually apprehend Christ and we comp- you know we, there's this reciprocal then relation together um, but all three of those aspects of union with Christ, everything you experience as a Christian, it began before the ages when God chose you in Christ. Um, and notice, it's all to the praise of His glorious grace. Three times in Ephesians 1, 1-14, Paul says that phrase to the praise of His glory. One of those times he says to the praise of His glorious grace. God has elected and predestined us and sent Christ to purchase our eternal redemption, and He sent His Spirit into our hearts so that we would cry out as His people, how glorious is the grace of God. How unsearchable is His kindness. That He set His eternal love for me in His Son, and from that flows his predestination of giving me a glorious inheritance and destiny that cannot fail now everything i've said so far assumes something it assumes that when we talk about god's predestination that we are talking about god choosing particular individuals to a particular destiny but there are some who have challenged that view uh, throughout the history of the church and Paragraph 4 here is a response to them. Okay? So paragraph 4 reads, and forgive me, I accidentally grabbed for this paragraph and the next paragraph from the, modern, the modernized version, so it's going to read more updated than your hymnal will, but I think you'll be able to follow. It says, These predestined and foreordained angels and people are individually and unchangeably designated. And their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or decreased. Now, that might seem to you like, duh. I mean, what else would predestination mean, right? Well, as you know, in the history of the church, even what seems very plain gets challenged and the church has to respond. And that's what this paragraph is. Um, There have been those in the history of the church who have suggested that predestination and election in the Bible speaks not of an election of individuals, but of a corporate election. Okay? How many of you have heard of corporate election? Okay. Not as many as superlapsarianism. And what they do is they point to Israel's election, right? And they say, look, God elected Israel as a nation, right? Um, To be His chosen possession, and on and so forth. And... They say that Christians, follow me here. This is where a handout would have been good. They say that Christians are God's elect, not in the sense that He selected them as a particular people for salvation, but they are elect because they belong to the group that He considers to be elect. Okay? I'll say that a couple different ways and see if it sinks in. So, God's election in this view is not His choice of individuals for faith and salvation. Rather, it is His choice to save those who have faith in Christ. And so they say, God didn't choose which individuals would populate the church, but rather, He designated that the church is elected corporately, but there's no individuals that God necessarily puts into it. And men then become elect by believing and therefore becoming a part of the church. right? So God has just made this general statement that whoever's within the church are the chosen, they're the blessed, kind of like Israel. And ultimately it rests though on men by believing, putting themselves into that category of elect. So, as you can see, in that scheme, election is very impersonal. right? You can't really say God actually chose me in the sense of me. It's rather He chose the church generically and I just... Happen to become a part of it, right? Um, So, Beakey put it this way. He said, there are no particular individuals in this view, but only God's choice of a category, i.e. believers, which men then fill by their choices. So, hopefully that makes more sense than... um, What were we considering last time? Uh, What was it? Arminianism and uh, Molinism. Yeah, hopefully that makes more sense than Molinism, at least. Um, Now, so here... let, Let me just... Kind of rubber meets the road. That view, as much as I get why people are doing it, they're trying to escape the implications of again, they don't like a God who chooses one over the other, right? Um, I get what they're trying to do, but it it just doesn't work biblically, right? So, for instance, think about some text with me. Acts thirteen forty eight. Luke writes, "When the Gentiles heard this, okay, Paul's been preaching to the Jews. The Jews are persecuting him as usual." And he says, you know what, to the Jews, forget it, I'm, I'm done, and I'm turning to the Gentiles. And Luke writes this, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Okay? Now, what came first? Believing or being appointed to eternal life? Being appointed, right? They believed in time because they had been appointed to eternal life. And who was appointed to eternal life? Not all of them. It says as many as were appointed. Now, think about that versus the corporate election view I just laid out. Luke clearly didn't think that people become appointed to eternal life by believing, okay? They don't become a part of the elect when they believe. Rather, they believe because they individually were appointed by God before the foundation of the world. And you just have to do mental, I mean, exegetical gymnastics if you want that to mean anything other than that, right? John chapter 10, okay? The, The Good Shepherd. Jesus says that he has sheep that the Father has given to him. And that He knows them and He lays down His life for them. And get this, Jesus says He calls them by name. Okay? Christ didn't just come to die for a generic people that He didn't know who they would be who don't have names, who He doesn't know, you know from Adam. He came for the sheep whom the Father had given to Him. Right? This is where we, we need to when you pull the thread of, you know, of God's work and the Trinitarian work, when you pull any one of the threads, the whole thing starts to become unraveled. Um, one of the reasons we believe in particular redemption or limited atonement is because we also believe the predestination of the Father is particular. It doesn't make any sense for the Father to choose a certain people, the Spirit to apply Christ to a certain people, but then Christ, for some reason, died for everyone. You're dividing and rending asunder the the unified work of the Trinity at that point. Um, The reason Christ's death was for his sheep is because the Father had given him those sheep. And Christ knows them by name, and the Spirit applies Christ to them and them only. Um, Also, I mean, think about John 6. Jesus says that of those the Father has given him, he will lose none. Well, if the church isn't fixed in number, I don't know how Jesus can really make that statement that he won't lose one. Anyway, okay, verse, or er, I'll, I'll just say this. There is a fixed number of those who will be in heaven, and God knows that number perfectly, and he knows it because he predestined them to reach glory. Okay? Now, paragraph five. This is our last, last paragraph, and then we'll close for, for questions. Uh, Paragraph 5, those people who are predestined to life were chosen by God before the foundation of the world according to His eternal and unchangeable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will. We've already covered most of that in previous paragraphs. This is what I want to focus on. He chose them in Christ for eternal glory purely as a result of His free grace and love without anything else about them serving as a condition or cause moving Him to do so. Okay? Now, this is the paragraph where the Confession affirms that not only is predestination biblical and for the glory of God, as we saw in paragraph 3, not only is it particular, paragraph 4, but now paragraph 5, predestination is unconditional. Okay? And this is where, if you're familiar with the tulip, the U is unconditional election, right? This is one of the biggest things that people struggle with in the Calvinistic system. Um, is this the unconditionality of God's choice of who He would have mercy upon. Um, the Confession says it is purely the result of God's free grace and love. There was, in other words, nothing about us that served as a condition or cause that moved God to choose us. Okay? Now, I've got a couple texts I want you to look at with me. Turn to Romans chapter, and everyone thinks I'm going to 9. Go to Romans 11. I almost, almost tricked you. Come on, admit it. You just, you just assume. <laughs> Romans 11, verse 6. Um, I'll, I'll explain the context. Paul, all of Romans 9 through 11 is answering the question what about the Jews, right? How, if the Jews were God's chosen people in the Old Covenant, how is it that the vast majority of Jews are rejecting the Christ? And Paul's answer is well, not all Israel is of Israel, right? God has an elect. So that's the main context of Romans 9 through 11. Particularly, chapter 11 is Paul talking about how there still was in his present day a remnant of believing Jews who have embraced Christ. And he even points to himself as an example of that. He says, I'm. Jewish. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, and I'm an apostle of Christ. But here, he says to the Romans, he says, remember Elijah, the prophet Elijah, who, you know, Lord, they've torn down your altars, and I alone am left. That's what Elijah thought, that basically, I'm the only one who hasn't apostatized and bowed the knee to Baal. And Paul tells the Romans here, what was the divine reply? God said to Elijah, behold, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now look at verse 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Okay, let me point out something very important to notice. Paul is not talking about justification here. Okay, uh, Usually when we see Paul denying that something is by works, he's talking about our justification, right? And he's contrasting faith in Christ's work with relying on our own works, right? And that's where he denies, no, don't trust in your own works. That's not what's in view here. Like I said, Romans 9-11 through 11 is about election and God's choice. Here he says, notice, there is a remnant... Chosen or elected by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So, I hope you see, Paul is explicitly denying that those elected, he's explicitly denying that they are elected on the basis of what they are or what they have done. Does that make sense? Maybe, kind of. Okay. Turn back to Romans chapter 9 now. This, this harkens back to what Paul has already seen or said two chapters earlier Romans 9, 11 through 13. Paul's talking about Jacob and Esau. They had the same parents, they're twins. Hard to get two people more alike. And Paul says, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works. Okay, there's that same phrase we saw in chapter eleven. But because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, someone may object um, that, well, Paul's not talking about God's election unto eternal life, though, here, right? God's or Paul's just talking about what would become of the nations of Jacob and Esau, right? He's not, he's not talking about eternal destinies, eternal life, eternal death, anything like that. Here's, I'll give you a number of reasons why that interpretation doesn't work. Number one, the whole point of this chapter and chapters 10 and 11 is why are Israel not being eternally saved by Christ, right? I mean, that's the whole reason he brings it up. Is... The Jews are perishing. okay. But notice, um, number one, I guess I already gave you one. Number two, I'll say. He uses Pharaoh as an example of an individual whose heart was hardened. Right? Thirdly, all throughout Romans 9, Paul retains the singular pronoun when explaining election and reprobation. For instance, verse 15, I will have mercy on whom? Singular. I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom? Singular, I have compassion. And lastly, what I think is maybe the most obvious one, if you look at verse 22, Paul can't be talking merely about the corporate election of nations and what would become of them in this world history, because look at verse 22. We already read it. He says, "...what if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. Notice verse 24. Even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Okay? So, who are the vessels of mercy He's describing? It's not nations. It's us. The church made up of Jew and Gentile. So, I think it's very clear. Election. It's for the glory of God, it is particular, and it is unconditional. It rests merely on the good pleasure of God to glorify Himself in the salvation of a people that He chose for Himself. Now, let me just briefly close with two, two applications, and then we can open it up for uh, questions. Number one, Christian, seek and enjoy assurance of your election. Seek and enjoy assurance that you are among the elect of God. There are many people who think they understand predestination and yet they haven't understood as they ought to and they conclude that the doctrine of election and predestination undermines assurance. And they think that it reduces assurance to just an arbitrary speculation about whether or not God has chosen me. That's not how the Bible talks about this. That, if, if that's the view you have, if, and you think that believing in election makes assurance, assurance impossible, what you have done is you have divided election from the fruits of election. Okay? We can be assured of our election in this life as the Holy Spirit shows us the effects of election as defined in His Word. Okay? So let me ask you, Christian, Do you have faith? I mean, with Judgment Day honesty, are you trusting Christ? Have you turned away from any hope of anything you are or have to offer to God and you've realized Christ is the only One that can present me to God? If that's you this afternoon, it's because of your election. Uh, Acts 13.48, As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Do you love God's holy ways and walk in a measure of genuine obedience to His Word and His law? If so, that's because, Ephesians 1.4, it's because He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. Right? Are you striving to increase in knowledge and purity and love? 2 Peter 1.10, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And the these things that he's referring to is the list of virtues he's just listed for the Christians. That you would be growing in faith and brotherly love and good works and all these virtues. That is one of the ways God confirms to us our calling and our election. So, Christian, link your faith and your holy calling to God's election just as Paul does in Romans 8.30. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He justified. Those whom He justified, He glorified. Second thing. Second and last application. Evangelize the lost with confidence in the God of election. So in your evangelism, Christian, do it with confidence that God has an elect people. Predestination undergirds persevering evangelism. Honestly, if you don't believe God has an elect, it can be very easy to get discouraged. I mean, why, why keep talking to this person when I've talked to him 10 times, 20 times, and they still don't care? Right? But if you believe God has an elect, that He can get a hold by sovereign grace, you keep talking. And you keep going. Um, Paul says, Second Timothy 2, 8-10, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in My Gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. And then he says this, but the Word of God is not bound, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so, Paul, why do you suffer as you do? Why do you voluntarily choose to go into places and cities where they're going to stone you? They're going to arrest you. Paul says, because God has an elect. And therefore, I will endure all things for the sake of God's elect because God will get them. And they will come to a true saving knowledge of Christ. So, let us, brother, brother and sister, let us rest our hearts upon the solid ground that God's Word will not return to Him void, but will accomplish His purpose. Uh, William Perkins said, "...Ministers of the Gospel may be discouraged when after long preaching they see little or no fruit of their labors, and the people whom they teach remaining as blind, impenitent, and unreformed as ever they were, but they must consider that it is the purpose of God to choose some for salvation and to refuse others." And that of the first, that is, of those He's chosen, some are called sooner than later. Christ has His sheep, including those not yet in His fold. The Father gave them to Him. He died for them. And they will hear His voice. You better believe that the Father doesn't give someone to the Son, and the Son doesn't die for that person that the Spirit will fail to get a hold of. Okay? Election is certain. Christ's death in their behalf and resurrection is certain. And therefore, we can be certain His sheep will hear His voice and they will be brought in. And so Christian, in your evangelism, trust God. Be faithful and trust God. Just keep speaking. Go on talking. Go on being faithful. Let's close there. Any? Well, close close my part. Uh, We we can do Q&A if... If there are any questions, did you have your hand raised, John? Okay, after Tim, then then John.
1: So I got a fun one. What's that? Um, so the um, Armenian belief would would be that. Um, that the reason they believe that the way that they do is the responsibility implies ability. Yes. So, how would you defend
0: that? Well, I wouldn't because I'm not an Armenian.
1: No, I'm. I'm saying.
0: How from, would I argue from, against? How from would I argue that a
1: reform point of view?
0: So an Armenian assumes that. Responsibility implies ability, right? If God commands you to do something, it must mean you have the ability on your own to do it. What would I say, that, say to that as a Reformed? Yeah. Yeah, so I would say that um, there are different types of... There are different types of inability that we need to um, differentiate between, right? Um, and this goes back to a distinction that Edwards didn't invent it. Uh, it was President Andrew Fuller um, and even going back early in the church. there are different types of inabilities, some excuse us and others don 't right so one of the most important distinctions in Calvinistic doctrine is the distinction between a uh, a natural or physical inability and a moral inability right so for instance um, let's say someone breaks into my house, I'm in my study, they sneak up on me and they chain me to my chair, right? And they tell me, now get up, right? If you don't get up, I'm going to harm you, right? And everything in me tries and I want to get up but I'm physically chained to the chair. My inability to move is no longer a result of my my being culpable, right? It's because I've been physically constrained. So I'll apply that to biblical categories. If God were to command us to believe, and we really didn't have the physical capacities to believe, it would be unjust for God to require that of us, right? Because He's—I mean, it's like God—it's like God telling, making us so that we can only jump three feet high. I mean, some people can jump what five? I don't know. Let's say the highest jump someone can do is ten feet. God makes us with our limited nature, and then says, "Now, jump over that hundred-foot fence, or else I'm sending you to hell." That would be unjust, right? We, we've been made physically unable to do that. But when God commands us to believe, He's not commanding us to do something that we physically aren't able to do. He's commanding us to do something that we aren't morally able to do because of our bondage to sin we don't want to believe, right? And that kind of inability does not excuse me. It's a real inability. I'm so by nature enslaved to sin. It's like a, it's like a lion. You put a piece of steak and a piece of lettuce in front of a hungry lion, what's he going to go for? Ten out of ten times, he's going to go for the steak, right? That's similar to us. We are lovers of darkness, so you offer us righteousness or darkness, we're going to choose darkness every time. We're going to choose unbelief, right? So, we are unable to believe in the sense, that's what Jesus says, you can't. no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But it's not an inability that's physical that would... Excuse us! It's actually it's my fault. I so love darkness that I can't choose the light. Does that make any sense? That was a long ex- explanation for. Yeah. I
1: kind of think, my voice uh, I think would also like uh, the law. Uh, God has. Given us a responsibility to be obedient to the Ten Commandments, yet there was nobody that had the ability to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I and I think the... uh, faith is kind of the same way. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, and we just don't have the ability because of our nature, like you were saying.
0: Yeah, but and that's where that distinction is important, though, because the question is, why can't anyone keep the Ten Commandments? It's because we love darkness. It's because we don't want to keep the Ten Commandments, right? Um, Because the reason I stress that is sometimes Calvinists talk about free will in such a way that they they run dangerously close to actually denying the very grounds on which God will hold us accountable. And they act like, no, you don't even make any choices. And it's like, okay, if I don't make any choices, then what exactly is God going to hold me accountable for? My problem is that I make choices and that my nature's bad. <laughs> so I make bad choices. You know what I mean? So we've got to be careful that we... And I'm not saying you're doing this, but that's why I went through that long explanation of here's what we do mean, here's what we don't mean. Because if we're, if we're unguarded with our language, people are just going to walk away thinking like, cool, I'm, I'm not going to give an account for anything. I mean, you know, because God's... You know, I don't have the ability to do it sort of thing. So
2: anyway, John. Maybe hey, we can play with the the infra and supra lapsarian part, uh, I feel a natural leaning as, as you explained, you did well I feel like uh, probably more often people are probably naturally inclined to go supra, but uh, what would the infra side, you can just give like one example, see as the consequence of going the supra lapsarian direction, I remember I heard a good argument, but I can't remember it, so I'm wondering if you might remember one, <laughs> or somebody in here might remember one so are you asking me to give... What, yeah, what would the infralapsarian side see as the consequence of holding the lapsarian yeah. view? Maybe just one example.
0: So historically this is true. I mean, I think, maybe there's, maybe there's exceptions that I don't know about, but all, all hyper-Calvinists are superlapsarian, but the reverse is not true. Not all superlapsarians are hyper-Calvinists, right? Um, So, sometimes the superlapsarian variety of Calvinism is called high-Calvinism because it's so closely associated with hyper-Calvinism, right? And hyper-Calvinism is the view, it's just as wrong as Arminianism. It's the view that, in fact, it makes the same mistake the Arminian makes. It assumes if sinners are not able to respond to the Gospel, then we shouldn't preach the Gospel to them, right? Right? It's the same type of argument. And so they just conclude, I'm not going to evangelize anyone until I see signs of election in that person. That's wrong. I hope none of us walk away you know, thinking that way. Um, so probably the first thing you would hear was, hey, be careful about becoming a hyper-Calvinist. But it doesn't follow, though. I mean, I want to be... Because like I said, I, I tend to be more persuaded by the superlapsarian lapsarian argument. Um, and I'm not a hyper-Calvinist. You know what I mean? so while it is... Something to ha- keep your eye on. It's not like you have to become this if you're this sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what else more to what more to say. I mean, I think I think the the supra. No, I'm sorry. I think the infralapsarian person would probably have issues that, if God elected and reprobated prior to his decree of the creation and fall is there unrighteousness with God? Right? I think they would struggle with that. Um, And it's hard to discuss this without... I'm I'm trying to like... which which rabbit trails do I open up and which do I not? So like Romans 9, Paul says, from the same lump, God made vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. So the question is, and I'm not sure this is even something Paul necessarily had on his mind, but the question is, when Paul... thinking about that lump that God chose some for honorable and some for dishonorable, was God perceiving that to be an un, a yet uncreated and unfallen humanity in which He is sovereignly determining that the fall will happen and I will redeem these, but the fall will also happen and I will not redeem these? Or, in His logical mind, did God already see humanity as fallen, right? Right? I don't know that you can answer that question exegetically from Romans nine, but um, that's kind of the issue. I think I think the super, or the infra person would probably think uh, you're 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 driving really close to what seems to be something that we could maybe charge God with unrighteousness. If 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 mankind wasn't already fallen in His mind, how is it just to reprobate, right? Because that's what that's what supers believe is the first thing. If if you want, it's hard to God's decree is eternal. It it didn't happen in temporal successive moments. So we're thinking logically here. But the super believes God elected and reprobated as his first thing because that's the last in the order of execution. That's what God will be glorified for, and so the ultimate thing God desired to be glorified for is the first thing that He would do in order of the decree. In order to accomplish that, he had to then decree creation and then decree the fall, right? And so the Supra sees the creation and the fall as something that serves God's ultimate purpose to glorify Himself in showing mercy to some and showing His justice to others. And that's the last thing I'll say on this. That would actually be one of my just questions to the infralapsarian position. In the infralapsarian position, you have God... Decreeing to create and to fall and then election and reprobation. And my question is, why did God decree to create and fall before He even knew that He was going to elect some to glorify Him? It almost introduces recklessness, in my opinion, into the decree of God. Now, there may be good brothers in here. Sisters, I don't know. And you can can yell at me for saying that. (laughs) Anyway, I'll stop there. I, I could talk... What's that? I don't think any emperor believes that it was before he ever knew, because God's all-knowing and has known everything for Yeah, but we're talking about the logical order of the decree. Yeah, but he said before he ever knew. Yeah, sorry. I don't mean that he's not omniscient in that sense. But there is an order if we talk about the logicalness of in which God decreed the various aspects of creation. You do have to admit... That There was a moment, if you want to use that term, in which God decreed to create and fall without a reason for it yet. So, yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying though. Is that there is a moment where why create the fall into sin before... You know what I mean? Whereas the super doesn't have that same charge because they already know why God decreed the fall. It's because He wants to glorify Himself in election and reprobation. So it gives, in my opinion, it gives more of a uh, coherence to the system of wisdom, if you will. I know you, you probably disagree with that. <laughs> Any, anything else? Anyone else?
2: Uh, like, kind of going along his question with some of the uh, men and women who are minions who would struggle with the free will kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, like, I don't I don't want to skip to chapter uh, 5. Uh, but so one of them is God in his ordinary promise makes use of means. Sorry, hang on w- real quick. Speak a little slower. I'm just, okay, I'm going to try hear you. I was trying to speak quick, so I don't take yeah, up too so yeah, much yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so some so, so the idea of free will you were talking about moral inability and, and physical inability yep. and so we're talking about uh, the way that God controls the universe right so some might say well if God controls everything right that's gotta be determinism and determinism would b- basically all my actions are just selected for me correct so so then in in thinking of that is there an idea in those men's mind who are maybe when it comes to election, that there is this idea, well, one for the hyper-Calvinism, that God uses means to save people, namely the preaching of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And uh, in paragraph two of chapter five, uh, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, so, there is not, so that there is not anything befalls uh, any by chance or without his providence, yet... By that same providence, he ordered them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Mm-hmm. So I guess the question would be, is there something in, that lacks in the mind of a quote-unquote free will person that, does, that, that God is active and yet there are also secondary causes, and how would that be able to answer maybe some of their objections? Is that question clear?
0: Try, try one more time, just concisely. The la- just okay. yeah, try to re- rephrase the question. And-
2: Is there a misunderstanding of the way that God acts in his decree that they m- might misunderstand how God's will actually works itself through history, through his providence, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean determinism?
0: I'll say this, and you tell me if it's answering what you're saying. Um, I do think fundamentally that people who object to Reformed theology, they don't believe that you can have more than one cause causing the same action in which one can remain pure and holy and the other be accountable and guilty, Right? Because that's what our confession assumes is God the first cause, but He causes the first, or His decree to be carried out according to the nature of second causes. Right? So, Joseph... Um, who delivered Joseph into the hands of the Egyptians? You could say both. Well, yeah, you could say his brother, but ultimately you could say God did it. Right? Now, God did not do evil. The brothers did evil. And, let, you know, Genesis 50-20, you know, you, evil, you brothers meant it for evil. God meant it, the same it, for good. So, just that's a presupposition re- the re- Reformation took on. Is, hey, we see in the Bible, God has attributed credit to doing something. Sinful man is also. And yet, sinful man's the one who's going to give account, an account for sinning, and God remains holy and righteous. I think, and I, don't, I won't just say our minions because I think we need to be more nuanced than that. I think anyone who's not of that reform perspective, that's one of your biggest issues. They just don't want to embrace that at some level, a mystery of how can this be? You know what I mean? And I get it. They believe if I'm going to be accountable, they want to have this idea of, you know, a sovereign um, what's it called, uh, libertarian free will, uh-huh. where the decree of God in no sense is underneath or in my actions, but this is what I chose to do. That way I'm accountable. And to be fair, I think many of them do want to do it because they're, they're worried that we're going to kind of de- start denying human accountability and start blaming God. So I want to be fair. I think many of them have a, a right concern. I don't think they come up with the right conclusion so i 'll pause there does that is that at all that you know, you're, no that
2: 's exactly yeah I, I think I know just in conversations that I had in past and i 've had to learn a lot since then, there is you know that the compatibilist uh, yeah. you know in between libertarian and and determinism where um, God can be the mover of all things, and yet man maintains complete responsibility for yeah. all of his sins and God can also take credit for everything good that man does. Yeah. And and then you might ask, is there injustice with God? Yeah. You know, by no means, who yeah. are you to talk back? Yeah. And I've always I, I've always struggled to be with that answer to give anybody who doesn't agree. It's like, well the answer that the Bible gives me is who are you? Yes. I mean that's yes. it. That's yes. all we've got. And yeah. then the other question was according to his, with the moral inability was we don't have the ability but adam did correct he, he would have had the immoral ability to obey yes obey yeah. god yep yep but being fallen in him that's where our moral yep. inability comes from yeah and so there is an idea of god does still demand things of us and it's not unfair exactly but we failed yeah, so that's yeah. exactly and that's that's a good point um
0: Human, human nature in its fourfold state, right? Um, we are in a different... We have never known Adam's state in the garden, right? Adam in the garden was in a state of innocency. So he was made upright. He had the ability to obey God, right? But he was also mutable. He could fall from it. Um, when he fell, it's not like... And this was Pelagius' problem... We're all just new Adams. Every time someone's born, it's like, hey, we're starting the garden over. Right? And so if God commands us, certainly I must be able to do it. Right? Who needs grace? That's wrong. When Adam fell, we fell in him and he plunged us into a state of sin to where not only can we not do good, we can't do anything but sin. We're enslaved to sin. Then, the state of grace restores us to a state of where I'm able not to sin, and I'm able to sin, right? That's the Christian life. Rom- Romans seven, right, Brandon? <laughs> just just no, not amen. Come on. You know where I stand on Romans seven? <laughs> oh, sorry, yeah. Um, and then the state of glory is when we're, we're put into a condition of unable to sin. We will only be able to do what's right. And we won't be mutable like Adam. We'll be fixed in that state of glory. So it's better than the state that Adam was in. So, yes, those are important categories. Yeah, thanks for the Latin. You can't talk about that without saying the Latin. But I would have mixed it all up because once you get going, it's like, uh, wait, (laughs) yeah.
1: I, kinda, I don't know if you've ever read uh, um, uh, the trustees on free will and grace that, um, um, that uh, what's his name? Uh, I'm not familiar. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of his name. I'm just having a brain fart. Augustine wrote. Have you ever read it?
0: Augustine?
1: Augustine. Yeah, the, the trustees on free will and grace that he wrote. Have you ever read that?
0: Uh oh, oh, I don't think so. Uh, oh. I'm not sure.
1: Anyways, uh, um, I kind of like the conclusion that he came to um, personally. He neither denies free will nor grace. Um, what he describes is he describes the condition of man's nature is that what he does in a sinful state is that according to his nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it can't be attributable, attributable to God but to his nature, and therefore he's responsible for it. Um, And then when he describes grace, he gives God all the glory so that any time that man does anything that is good, it's always attributable to to God's grace and his glory. Mm -hmm. And so in that, um, and I think uh, also Bettner kind of follows his line of thought in uh, the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination when he kind of describes the, the heart of Pharaoh. And he describes it in a sense of uh, that when Pharaoh, when it says that God hardens his heart, it also describes Pharaoh as hardening his own heart. And so he describes it as God basically taking the restraint of the Holy Spirit off of him and allowing him to be what he is naturally. And I kind of get almost the picture of in the fall, it's kind of like a coal that's in the fire. In the presence of God, filled with that fire, and then you take it out and set it to the side, and by nature it does what it's going to do, and it goes out,
0: because
1: mm-hmm. it no longer has that fire until somebody puts it back into the fire.
0: Hmm.
1: And so in that, um, I would just uh, um, I just kind of feel like uh, that that neither denies the glory of God nor attributes sin and evil to God in the sense of us doing what is wrong.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Well, and we need to be zealous to affirm both those things, right? Amen. That God God is holy and we are responsible. Yeah. Good. Maybe one more or maybe we should just sing actually. Unless someone has a pressing question. Brandon? Or no? Is it brief? Okay. 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 I, uh, I'm going to awkwardly transition to the piano so we can do do our closing hymn.